Well, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we are broadcasting from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And we're glad to be with you. We still don't have our new sound recording equipment ready to use yet, mainly because the learning curve. We're still learning how to use it. But we do assure you that we own it, <laughs> and you will enjoy the fruit uh, sooner than later. But anyway, uh, we're uh, going to uh, spend some time today talking about, uh, as we do every week, uh, something related to theology and culture and so forth. And before we get into that, why don't we go ahead and remind you of who we are. So on my right is... Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Tom Price, adjunct professor of systematic theology and Christian ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And as you know, I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I actually did teach philosophy at the college level in ancient times. But anyway, (laughs) so today is Glenn's Day, and Glenn, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to do a little bit of political theology. All right, there we go. And uh, in particular, I want to get to the uh, a movement called Protestant Resistance Theory, which basically raises the question: When is it okay to resist a duly constituted government? God tells us uh, in Romans chapter thirteen that we're supposed to obey the powers that be. What are the limits on that? When is it right, under what circumstances, and how do we resist the government? Okay. Now, to, to start here, I, I'm going to have to go way back and take a look at the thought of a guy named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine. Going in the Wayback Machine. Yep. And Augustine here is, we don't normally, we think of him as a theologian, we think of him in connection with uh, the Pelagian controversy and predestination and maybe the Donatists or, you know, the Manichees, whatever. Theologians tend to talk about him in those terms, but he is actually one of the two key fathers of the Western political tradition. Oh, yeah. And the way you get there, just to keep it simple because we've got a lot of ground to cover here, Augustine is the guy who really codified the idea of original sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Put simply, original sin doesn't necessarily imply that we inherit guilt from our parents, but what it does say is that we're corruptible that we all have a tendency toward corruption. We all have a tendency toward sin. Now, if that's the case, then it means that anybody in government is also subject to original sin. Now, just to let people know, it's not as though Augustine made this up out of thin air. I mean, you've got Romans chapter 5. Sure. Yeah, Augustine is really reflecting on Scripture here. But he's the person who really, in a lot of ways, laid out what the implications of all of this were. particularly for the Latin church, the Western churches. So here's the problem. If, you, if your emperor, even your Christian emperor, is subject to original sin, can you really trust him with absolute power, unlimited power? And the answer is no. No way. So coming out of the Augustinian tradition, what we get is a distrust of government because of the corruptibility of people within the government. Mm. And therefore, all through the Middle Ages, 
all government was limited. No one was trusted with absolute power. You have a constitutional system throughout the Middle Ages where there are checks and balances on people's power. That wasn't invented by the U.S. Constitution. It's, it's part of, of the implications of Augustine's ideas on politics. I was just thinking, you know, we often think of later, later modernity, the sort of hermeneutics of su- suspicion, but really that's an outgrowth of what we would almost call idolatry critique, but also the fact that sin in especially political spheres is, um, is something that's there. And so the mask that you can have a political leader that is not, is, 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 you know, just because they're in political office, therefore doesn't make them divine like the ancient world would hold. It actually holds that they are susceptible to sin like everyone else. Right. Now, the, in the Middle Ages, this pessimism about government, this negative view about government, was sort of tempered by Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle is recovered in about the 12th century. A lot of his writings that had been lost in the West are brought back in via Muslim Spain, and in particular his works on politics. And Augustine believed, excuse me, Aristotle believed that government, since it exists in the world, it is a natural thing, it can be positive. He wasn't naive enough to believe it always would be. But what Augustine says is there are three basic forms of government. Government by a single leader, um, which would be, in positive sense, a monarchy. The negative version of that is a tyranny. The difference between the two being the tyrant rules for his own self-interest, where the king rules in principle for the interest of the society. Then you have government by, well, committee. Uh, aristocracy is the positive version. Oligarchy is the negative. Uh, this is The idea here is that the government would be a deliberative body. That is to say, they would deliberate, they would make decisions collectively. And the idea here is that, unlike a king, if a king makes a mistake, there's no buffer. Hmm. With an aristocracy, they can discuss and come up with policy together, and bad ideas aren't likely to get much traction because the other people in the group will shoot them down. Hey, guys. Hey, Chris. So... Uh, the king can act quickly and decisively in emergencies, whereas the aristocracy might dither, but on the other hand, the aristocracy is less likely to make mistakes. The third good form of government is a republic, which is government via representation. The negative version of that is a democracy, where people rule directly. Hmm. And Aristotle had experience with democracy. He was an Athenian, and he knew, you know, we think of Athenian democracy as a positive thing. It really wasn't. <laughs> it was, you know, and Aristotle understood that. He knew where that led. So he saw the democracy as a degenerate form of government because of the danger of the demagogue, a mob <laughs> leader right. who would sway the passions of the people and that they would act on the basis of emotion, not reason. <laughs> okay. So in any event, what Aristotle gives us is a positive, potential picture of government, what Augustine gives us is how the positive versions of government turn into the negative versions. Hmm. Okay. And these two things combine to really create the Western political tradition. Hmm. Um, the ideal, because all of the f- good forms of government have positives and negatives associated with them, according to Aristotle, the ideal is to create a, or within the Aristotelian tradition, you want to create what's called a mixed state that combines elements of all three. Hmm. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that later. Hmm. Now, when we get up to the Reformation, um, 
you have Martin Luther, who has a bunch of princes that want to side with him, but the emperor wants to shut him down. So the princes get together and they create in a little town called Schmalkalden, and they create something called the Schmalkaldic League. It's a defensive league of the princes within the empire, the Lutheran princes in the empire, that they agree that if the emperor should go after one of them, they will all cons- they will consider it an attack on the whole group, and they will all collectively act in, in defense. They come up with this, they approach Luther, and they say, yeah, Martin, this is what we're going to do in defense of, of uh, the gospel. Uh, what do you think? And Luther says, absolutely not. <laughs> and they say, what? <laughs> and Luther says, you can't do that. Romans 13 says you have to obey the governing authorities. What that means is you have to obey the emperor And if, in fact, he tells you to do something that violates God's law, you have to engage in civil disobedience and accept the consequences. There is no right of self-defense against the government. Hmm. Well, this leaves the princes in a bit of a bind. So they do the obvious thing. They send in the lawyers. (laughs) And uh, they're going to lawyer Luther into agreeing with them. And what they tell Luther is, okay, look, Under normal circumstances, what you're saying is right, but you're ignoring the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire. It's a limited government coming from Augustine. It's a limited government. The princes elect the emperor, number one, and number two, that means that they have the duty to oversee him. If the emperor does something illegal, if he breaks his word or whatever, it is their duty to resist. So Luther thinks about it, and in 1530 or 31, depending on what dating system you're using, he issues something called the Torgau Memorandum, in which he says, basically, if the lawyers are right, and according to the Constitution, the princes can resist the emperor, then this is theologically acceptable. Hmm. So this begins something that is known as Protestant resistance theory, the idea that, in its initial form, Resistance against unjust or illegal actions from a superior magistrate Mm. can be performed by the so-called inferior magistrates. That is to say, as long as someone in the government, all government is constituted by God, as long as someone in the government, even a lower office in the government, is leading the resistance against unjust Mm. or illegal commands, then it's legitimate. Mm. Okay, so that's how it begins. Okay. Now, we'll pick, mm. we'll, just going chronologically, we're, we're going to put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Then you get Calvin. Calvin does something really interesting in terms of political theory. What he does is he goes back to the book of Exodus. Hmm. And he looks but, at... you know, going to the Bible. Calvin yes. and the Bible. Yeah. Calvin in the Old the Testament Bible. in particular. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, he, he, there's no Marcionite there. <laughs> when, when, when Calvin looks at the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, hmm. what he notices is that God asked Israel three times, do you accept the terms of the covenant? Mm-hmm. And the people had to ratify the covenant mm-hmm. three times mm-hmm. before God put it into effect. Mm-hmm. Calvin said, what this shows us mm-hmm. is that if even God as king of Israel requires the people's consent, all government is based on the consent of the governed. Interesting. Yeah, that is. So government by the consent of the government governed is really Calvin's reflections on Exodus. Hmm. 
And he then is going to argue that government consists of a covenant, just like God's govern- mm. government did. It consists of a covenant between the ruler and the ruled mm. that depends on the consent of the governed. Mm. Okay. Now, these two strands, the resistance theory coming out of Luther and the covenant theory, are going to play together from this point on. Mm. You move ahead a couple more decades, you get into France. You've got the wars of religion taking place right. in mm-hmm. France. Um, the key event here, you know, the Protestants are insisting that they want to be loyal to the king, but they want to have the freedom to worship. They, in fact, they're frequently making the argument that the king is being deceived against them mm-hmm. by, the, by his evil advisors. And in mm-hmm. fact, if the king really knew what was going on, this is sort of a consistent thing you see, if the king only knew what was really going on, there wouldn't be a problem here. And, and holding those two things in place, that just kind of remind us of, of why they would hold both loyalty to the king and also the other well, one. Well, what they, what they want to do is they want to say that, you know, we are loyal to the king, we are good Frenchmen, and we are trying to obey the powers, powers that be. Indeed. That's it. But... The gospel demands that we worship differently, and the Catholic Church does not, the Catholic Church has illicitly usurped the authority of the magistrate. Hmm. That is to say, the Catholic Church has encroached on the legitimate hmm. ta- on, on tasks that legitimately belong to the secular government. Hmm. And so, while we disagree and we want to oppose the Catholic Church because of its distortion of the gospel and its usurpation of civil authority, we can do this while staying loyal to the king. Hmm. And there's a, there are a lot of complications in here that we can get into, but ultimately this whole argument falls apart in 1572 when during a period of safe conduct for the Protestants in Paris, something called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre occurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. St. Bartholomew's Day under, well, the exact circumstance I'm not going to get into, but ultimately it ends up being with royal permission misunderstood. 20 to 30,000 Protestants are slaughtered across Paris and France. And that's that's a good estimate. The estimates vary considerably, Mm. but 20 to 30,000 seems reasonable. At this point, the question arises, when does a legitimate king turn into an illegitimate tyrant? And one of the answers that was suggested is maybe when he starts slaughtering his own people. Right, yeah, there you go. Okay. So this is going to lead the Huguenots, the French Protestants, to begin picking up on Luther's Torgau Memorandum and developing resistance theory further, all the way up to the point of asking the question, when is it legitimate to assassinate a tyrant? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, meanwhile, you've got similar kinds of things happening in Scotland under Mary, Queen of Scots. Mm -hmm. So in 1579, George Buchanan writes a work in which he does something a little bit different. He takes this idea of resistance led by the inferior magistrates, which is still current in France, and he says no political power is vested in the people. Hmm. Thus, the people, if the people must consent to the government, then when the government begins violating their rights, the people, not the inferior magistrates, or not just the inferior magistrates, the people have a right to resist the crown. Hmm. Okay. That's later picked up and developed a bit further in, uh, by Rutherford in Lex hmm. Rex, That's where right. he says that uh, political authority comes from God, but it comes from God to the people. Hmm. Okay, so now, now you're adding a new wrinkle in the development of resistance theory. It's, it's 
no longer led by the inferior magistrates, but the right of resistance is vested in the people. So all of these different ideas are circulating around and, and they're, um, they're feeding into each other. Ultimately, where this is going to lead us to is Locke. John Locke. Right. In Locke's first treatise on government, which nobody ever reads, he mm. talks about the foundation of government being God and the Bible. Mm. Okay. But in his second treatise, he does, he does a couple of interesting things. First of all, he starts off by defining what is the responsibility of government. And this, this is really fascinating what he does here. He picks up on medieval Catholic theologians' reflections on the legitimate role of government and what government is not capable of doing. Hmm. And all of this is anchored in Genesis. Um, medieval theologians noted that there are certain things that are pre-political, that are things that are given by God before the institution of human government. And since they were ours before government, given directly by God, government does not have authority over them. Right. Hmm. This is a very good point to, to uh to sort of underscore yeah. in our time because mm -hmm. yeah. the sort of the press to make all things political yeah. subject to the government. Right. You know, for example, family life yeah. and so forth. That this, uh, this older view uh, which says that there are certain things that are given by God that are not uh, sort of political in nature yeah. but need to be uh, defended or supported or honored by government. Uh, it creates a, uh, an environment in which God's government mm -hmm. is recognized as being primary and a priori. Whereas today, because there is no you know, acknowledgement of God, there can be nothing that can be considered uh, pre-political. Now, pre-political in a human sense. That's right. Not, mm -hmm. not in terms of divine governance, but That's in terms right. of human governance. Mm -hmm. So that's why... You've, you've t you tend to find in totalitarian states uh, these pre-political institutions, families yeah. and communities and things of that nature, subject to the manipulation and yeah. machinations of, of in, either, if you, you know, put it in a nice way, do-gooders, but in another way, manipulators. Or to call them what they are, totalitarians. Yeah. Right. What, you know, if you look at Marx, Marx says that in order for a communist state to come into existence, you must destroy the family. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what Hitler did. The whole right. Hitler Youth Program was to yeah. dislodge the loyalty yeah. of the children to their parents and instead replace it to loyalty to Hitler and the state. Yeah. Yep. So if you were the father, yeah. in other words, a, a state father supplanting the natural father. That's what the public school system yes, right. <laughs> the United States well, yeah, is all right. about. That's, that's exactly what it's up to. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. And why I think that people who are uh, apologists for the public school system mm -hmm. are, uh, you know, what are they, what are they useful idiots? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So what, going back to the medievals, what they identify, this gets really interesting, what they identify as the essentials are first of all life, because God gave us life, therefore the government has no right to deprive us of life arbitrarily. Mm -hmm. the, other, the second thing that they found is liberty. Mm -hmm. And I want to define liberty here because I don't think people understand it. When I was in school, everybody said liberty was an old word for freedom. Yeah, it's no. not really yeah. it's right. It's a different sort of thing. Liberty is the idea that you have the, ultimately it boils down to the right to pursue virtue and the right to pursue the good. 
And where they see this in Genesis is God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one over here that's poison. So they have an unlimited option of good choices, but there is a restriction not to pursue vice. Liberty is found in the pursuit of the good. This is actually an idea you can even find in the Greeks, the idea of arete, Mm -hmm. uh, eudaimonia, all of these kinds of things are predicated Mm -hmm. on this idea of liberty being freedom for something positive as opposed to freedom from restraint. Freedom from restraint was called license. So you get liberty and license. You could, I mean, you could just say the transcendentals that both the, the ancient you know, world and Christianity, of course, clarified truth, beauty, and goodness were the ends for which freedom was oriented and shaped. Right. And, and, and you know, it, that was a positive. Those things evoked because of the, their anchorage in the divine. They evoked our, our image of godness towards them. Um, and when that that uh, that's what that's what being fr- you know liberated to God would be all about. Yeah. Right. And what we think of freedom today is license. I mean, it's freedom yes. from restraint. The reason yeah. for that is moral relativity. Yeah. Right. If if we live in a morally relative world, if there are no absolute standards of good and evil, if there is no such thing as virtue, yeah. then there can be no liberty. I often think, uh, especially teaching teaching in this this area a lot, and I, and I, th- I think of like the early Enlightenment because it was still so indebted to to Christianity that its naivety was such that the things that it unleashed these these kind of notions of autonomous freedom, um, freedom unbound by any pre- you know unpremised as they say, it doesn't have anything that that, that shapes or constrains it. Um, they, they could make sense in a world in which they could not conceive of anything outside of the Christian form. Right. But because that starts to, to erode because of the ontology or the metaphysics tied to this new notion of freedom, that sooner or later that's going to be something to be liberated from right. Christianity, its constraints, its formation, its direction. Therefore, it, it, it kind of introduces this kind of beast <laughs> right. that has become the alternative to genuine Christian um, you liberty. Know, yeah, yeah. liberty. Well, you know, the, nobody in the 17th, 18th, even 19th century argued that there was a natural right to license. They all argued for a natural right to liberty, but liberty is understood in this sense of the pursuit of a good, virtuous life. Now, I think that sometimes people today, when they hear that, they assume that 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 liberty that you're describing is completely sort of uh, laid out and people have to comply. But what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say, and I know is the case, is that within the framework of liberty, there's still a great deal of latitude Absolutely. Pursue particular visions or particular paths to uh, eudaimonia, happiness. Yeah. Right. So um, in the garden, um, it, it, it wasn't like they had to have grapefruit for breakfast and apples right. for lunch. Right. I mean, right. they could pick and choose whatever they wanted to within right. this within this positive set of things. They didn't have the freedom to choose the poison. Right. Because once they did that, they began to die. And the consequences, as Romans chapter 5 notes, mm-hmm. carry over to all these innocents, all these people, innocence not the right term, but all of these 
uh, people who suffer as a result. Right. There's spillage. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you have life and liberty. The other one that the medievals identified was property. Property amen, predates. Amen. That's property. The theme I like. I have to see my mic. <laughs> property predates government. <laughs> and where they got that is, interestingly enough, it was the Franciscans. The Franciscan theologians who themselves swore to a life of poverty were the ones who identified property as an unalienable right. This is interesting. Comb this out a little bit for me. I'm unfamiliar with this. The the way they got there is they looked at Genesis and they said, all right, God told Adam and Eve to tend the garden. Okay. And then he gave them permission to eat the fruit. Right. What that means is that Adam and Eve literally had the right to the fruit of their labor. Right, mm-hmm. right. Because when you work at something, you when you produce something... Of course, Locke picks up on that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Locke got all of these ideas from the medieval theologians. Yeah, yeah. When you work at something, you put something of yourself into it. Right. And since you are putting something and of yourself into this it... This is where Marx gets his alienation of labor. Mm-hmm. In other right. words, you're not you're not able to to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. So since you're putting something of yourself in, you have a right to ownership. Yeah. It's called the labor theory of property. Right, right. Now there are limitations here. I can't do this in such a way that I deprive other people of the same right. Sure. I mean, you know, there there are there are moral limitations here. Right. So Coca-Cola is not. Li- Permitted to like own the entire shelf space in a grocery store. Yeah, or the or the <laughs> even if you like Coke better. Than <laughs> yeah, or, or the entire production of the, right, the right. coconut. Right. Okay. So yeah. that this justifies you yeah. know, anti-monopolistic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so, RC Cola, which probably doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> but it should still have its shelf space. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So, so Locke. Right. Now, what Locke does is he looks at these medieval theologians and he finds these unalienable, that is to say, pre-political rights, and he says, okay, government exists to protect those. That's an interesting connection you made here, because I don't think that many people associate inalienable with pre-political. I agree with you. I'm just saying, though, that most people think of... I don't think most people think about it. Yeah. Right, or they tend to think. Well, they probably think in in a way that 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 is just kind of old language for something that guarantees something for me now. Yeah. So they right. they don't even really have it much. They, they don't invest much into the the metaphysical picture going on there. They, they would think it's an old. It's yeah. you know. They don't believe in metaphysics. That's right. So right. that's passe, but nevertheless, it gave me something good. We had to go through it to get to where we are now. Right. 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 Yeah. So. Locke identifies that as the, the core of government, but he then picks up Calvin. Mm-hmm. Government consists of a contract with the people to protect the unalienable rights. If the government violates the contract, then there is a right to, well, to revolt, to, to replace. Revolt, resist, right. This is coming out of Protestant resistance theory, particularly of the George Buchanan variety, because in Locke, the People have the right to revoke the contract. You know it had to be a Scott. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> had to be. But this contrasts very, very much with the revolutionary conception of that develops off. Which revolutionary? Well, uh, you can think of the stuff that grows out of Rousseau, for example. Okay, the French Revolution. Yes, because. What happens is Locke is then picked up very directly by Jefferson, coming up on the 4th of July. Um, Locke is picked up by Jefferson, 
who modifies him slightly in that he gets rid of the right, the right to property explicitly, but includes it implicitly in the idea of the, the uh, pursuit of happiness. Now, this is something I'd love to, to yeah. see you address down the road at another podcast, is why did Jefferson do that? And which is weird when you've been to Monticello. Yeah, anyway, sure. Well, <laughs> be, because I, I, I can answer it right here. The, the short answer is because to Jefferson, the pursuit of happiness implied property. Okay. Because you you have this idea, happiness doesn't mean to Jefferson what it means to us today. Yeah, it's yeah. eudaimonia. It's this yeah. idea of a good, fulfilling, satisfying life. Yeah. But in order to you know the life of virtue, all of those mm-hmm. things are implied by the by the term. But in order to do that, Jefferson believed that an, an essential prerequisite is the right to property. Because if you do not have s- solid property rights. You do not have the freedom to pursue that. If you don't have the right to ownership, you, you are always functionally a slave. You're always dependent on someone else, and therefore you cannot achieve eudaimonia. You yeah. cannot achieve happiness. So it's, I, I guess, it's, for him, it's implicit. Yeah, the problem is, is that today it's not for most yeah, people. That's right. Um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a group of people today who can't see the connection between property and happiness. They, right. they, even may, they may even think that, that property is a, a damper on happiness That's right. because yeah. it yeah. requires yeah. things of you. Yeah, well, well, Jefferson is actually here picking up on Renaissance humanists, okay. um, particularly second-generation humanists, the so-called civic humanists of the 15th century, where, you know, in the, the medieval world had this concept that poverty was a virtue. Right, because Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor," and right. the, any yeah. number of other quotes that you can point to. Liberation theology. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, they brought great. that back. Yeah, yeah. Well, they would like, they like to keep us there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Connecticut, in a strange way, has adopted that. <laughs> that's another shit. Liberation theology in Connecticut. That's right. Well, the 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 idea liberating you from your property. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Jesus says all of these things, and but being poor gives you the opportunity to allow other people who have wealth to do virtuous acts like giving to you. You know, those kinds of things. They're all kinds of... But the Renaissance humanists come along and say, well, no, no, no really, what life is about is virtue. Right. right. And wealth, yeah, wealth can be a trap, but it also can free you so that you can live a life of virtue. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's really the mindset that Jefferson is coming from. Right. Jefferson really held cities in contempt. He yeah. referred to the people who lived in cities as the swinish masses. Yeah. And, I, and I, actually said <laughs> and he actually doubted that they would ever be able to govern themselves. And because, they can't. Because New they, York City is our is our exemplar. Yeah. Hartford, <laughs> yeah. pick, pick. but if you San Francisco, it. Los Angeles, oh, no, well, never mind, <laughs> Chicago, um, <laughs> where the right to life is a really kind of shaky. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. but um, you know he, he, why? Because he believed that property ownership, living as a yeoman farmer, is the ideal life to have for both happiness, eudaimonia, and to pursue and to learn virtue. Yeah, and those things obviously go together. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I'm a very Jeffersonian sort of guy when mm-hmm. it comes to this yeoman aristocrat uh, mm-hmm. that he uh, that he praised and and, and tried to uh, you know apologize for. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this this is 
kind of a very, very compressed run through a lot of material. But what's, what's significant here, I think, is, well, let, let's take a look at the U.S. Constitution. Let's take this sure. one step further. Sure. If you look at the U.S. Constitution, you see the perfect marriage of Augustine and Aristotle. Hmm. Because it is built around a fundamental distrust of government. True. It is built around a system of checks and balances. Right. And it takes Aristotle's concepts of governance and this idea of a mixed state and frankly perfects it. Mm -hmm. So the monarchical principle mm -hmm. is embodied in the president. Mm -hmm. The aristocratic principle right. in the Senate and the Republican principle in the House mm -hmm. right. with the judiciary theoretically acting as referee. Right. At least in terms of the way the government works. Right, right. So the idea here is you're doing an Aristotelian mixed state so that the strengths of one can counteract the weaknesses of the other. But the assumption is that each branch of government would guard its own prerogatives and would team up with any other branch when the third branch was beginning to get uppity. Yeah. So the House and the Senate will combine against the president. The Senate and the president will combine against the House, and the House and the president will combine against the Senate to act as checks and balances against each other because the assumption is that loyalty to the specific institution that they're in will be the overriding concern because nobody wants to lose power. So we're going to use original sin, this desire for power, we're going to use it as a way of fighting corruption. Now, now, a couple a couple of things that come to mind here in re response to this, I, I I resonate with all of this. But uh, we can see all that at work today. Mm. You know, we, we, we do see kind of this uh, almost antagonistic relationship between the branches. Except, let me let me throw in one more thing here because okay. this is critical. Okay. The Constitution had no provision for political parties. Ah. Because. Right. This goes back to Venice, the, the serene republic from the Middle Ages. Right. Party is equated with faction, right. and factions are the death of republics. Mm. Right, right. So the original system That's had, important. had the president, the guy who got the most electoral votes, and the vice president, the person who got the second highest. So what we would have now is President Trump and Vice President Clinton. Okay. Mm. Okay. They realized it's been a very weird. Yeah, yeah, well, well they, they had something like that at the start. Yeah, that's right. Right. They realized it was unworkable. Right. Yeah. And so they created this idea of a slate of candidates. The reason why they feared party is or faction is because they thought that loyalty to the party would supersede loyalty to the institution. And thus you would get alliances between branches of government that would make the system of checks and balances put in place ineffective. People would be more loyal to their party than to their institution, and therefore they would work across branches more than within the branches. They wouldn't be protecting their own prerogatives. They'd be protecting the interests of the party. And we, and we see that. We that, see that. That is emphatically what we see now. Now, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a sense in which though all of this can be tempered by a, a vision of the common good. And, and it, depending on what the vision of the common good is. Well, and that brings me to, mm -hmm. my, to my point, is that some people have argued that this is why we need wars. Mm -hmm. In other words, wars provide us with a, uh, an objective foe 
that we have to unite against. Hmm. And then we end up with these periods of time in American history where we have this sort of nostalgia for, remember those days when we were all fighting the Nazis or yeah, yeah. fighting the commies or whatever. We see it even within even the conservative world now. Mm -hmm. So within conservatism today, for example, I belong to the, to the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. Now, the Academy of Philosophy and Letters is a paleo-conservative uh, scholarly association that broke away from the Philadelphia Society mm -hmm. over the Gulf War. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the guys who led that, that exodus out of the uh, Philly sock, as we call it, uh, were appalled at sort of the, well, the hawkishness and the eagerness to, to, to invade other countries and impose you know, Western democracy on them without any you know, real prospect that alien cultures that have entirely different histories could adopt <laughs> yeah, the traditions yeah, and, yeah, the, yeah. and the patterns and the habits. But, but notice the assumption is that people are infinitely malleable. Well, that's it. We're back to that. Yeah. And that's what people, and that's what the, the, the uh, paleocons accused the, well said, that's what the, the paleocons accused the uh, neocons of. Mm -hmm. So now the Phil Philadelphia Society is a kind of a neoconservative organization. The, the Academy of Philosophy and Letters is kind of a paleoconservative organization. Mm -hmm. They they were all guys who were on the same page when the commies were out there. Now when the commies were out there, we were like, man, we gotta. Yeah. And we even had the libertarians hanging out with us. Now the commies are within the party. <laughs> but back in the day, yeah. and when you talk about the those good old days, you know, the yeah. '80s and the '90s, or yeah. mostly the '80s and the '70s and backward, yeah. you know, you had this ability to hold the libertarians, the neocons, the paleocons all together uh, with you know something that was called fusionism. This idea that we can hold together socially conservative ideals with free market, you know, sort of economics. Charles de Gaulle, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, he once commented that the threat of danger, by which he meant foreign war, the threat of danger is the only thing that can unite a country with 482 kinds of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, as many different kinds of people as we have. Right. When you think yeah. about the United States, you've got the regions, yeah. which are so yeah. different from each other. Yeah. Uh, you've got the ethnicities, yeah. which again are so different from each other. Uh, and who knows what else? You know, the lifestyle enclaves, you know, yeah. whatever sort of thing you're into, the well, religions. It would be hard to imagine now, especially with the, the kinds of polarizations that are, what kind of unifying factor yeah. would, would play. Because, I, I mean, I, th I think the level of hatred at certain points, I, I can almost feel it tangibly at universities. Sure. Um, the, the level of hatred for the other would be that the other, you know, it's almost more of a civil war kind of. Um, psychology, right. and that you know that that you know they'd rather align with someone that would overthrow their brother or sister living right. across the street if they ideologically differed than than this kind of consensus. You know, an interesting thing is kind of pulls it out of a lot of this, but it would be interesting to revisit Augustine's notion of the city of God in relation to where we are now yeah, yeah. Um, because you you do you know you, you do see kind of the benefits of suspicion the way that played into you know this formation this limits um, and then this kind of setting the stage for a, a common life of pursuit of happiness however however we're looking at it but but Augustine was another one who understood that that, that pursuit of happiness was about reorienting our loves mm -hmm. um, shaping them the right way thank you 
and then um, then then orienting those things towards the proper good. This is one of the things I don't... I mean, again, there may have been a shared consensus at the time of the founding of the country in particular, but this is something that I think where there is so much radical difference on defining these things to where... You you can't take for granted the same same things. You, you can't even take for granted the you know sort of general Western commitment right. to Western civilization for that matter. Well, Western yeah. civilization. Yeah, well, now we have to get into the whole um, cultural Marxism, as it's usually called, um, outlook, which views the world in terms of a zero sum game. Yeah. Um, yes. Whoever is whoever succeeds succeeds by pushing somebody else down. Yeah. Um, Therefore, anyone who is successful is by definition an oppressor, which means they lose moral authority. The oppressed gain moral authority because it's a zero-sum game there, too, and so on. So Western civilization is evil because it's a dominant civilization culturally. Yeah. And, in and, the world. Being in, and, and there is no way to communicate across that mm-hmm. divide between oppressor and oppression. So therefore, the, the uh, you know... If, if and, you're on, yeah. That's also what leads yeah. to the internal civil war. It's yeah. not just Western civilization. It's why we're viewing others as the enemy. Yeah. yeah. Because we identify as either part of an oppressed class and the oppressors are yeah. evil, they have no moral authority, or we're woke yeah. and we're allies of the oppressed classes. And, and those the, are the only choices. Yeah, yeah. and of course what this, this, this creates is, is kind of a no-win world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's just think about this at kind of a very sort of you know, boots-on-the-ground level you know, it's a problem. And, and, and the problem you have is people who are successful uh, are successful not merely because they have advantages uh, culturally. They are often successful because they know how to do things. So what you end up doing is associating competence yeah. with, you know, sort of oppression. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, the pre- so, yeah, they, so in other words, we're successful when we promote incompetent people into positions of yeah, power. Yeah, the, the presumption is that everyone would be as gifted and competent if they were given the same set of privileges, which is, is a nonsense. It's, right. it's pure nonsense. I know that as a musician. Right. I have certain abilities as a musician. I knew people that had far better abilities, had nothing to do with privilege. A lot of them came out of situations that didn't have any privileges like I had. And, and so the, the suggestion is, is that, you know, and vice versa, the, the, the suggestion is, is that, yeah, if, if, if you had all these advantages, therefore you would have had all these things and you would have accomplished all these things. It's simply not true. Well, let, yeah. Let's take a look at a thing that was just in the news that I saw today. GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine. Huh? I don't read it. But it's it was still around. On, but it's still around. It was on Google today. So it was yeah. Google News Service. So what <laughs> happened, there's the, the latest... You know, uh, offense is that, uh, or and this is kind of just dumb. It was just one of yeah. these things where they they uh, there was apparently a gathering of of uh, Silicon Valley uh, CEO types, you know, guys who had started companies from scratch. Yeah. Now, if you're going to start a high tech company, you probably are pretty knowledgeable yeah. about a number of things. Sure, things related to technology, yeah. but also things related to business, things related to how do you actually produce a product that people want to buy, things like that. The great offense, you know where this is going, the great offense is in the photograph, I think there are about 20 people in the photograph, they're all white males. So in order to sort of deal with this terrible reality, this terrible offense, competent white men who upon whom we rely 
for you know the functional world, the, the world that actually works, where plumbing actually takes sewage away from your house, mm-hmm. <laughs> where where you pick up the phone and it actually works. <laughs> These terrible people yeah. all happen to be white males. Yeah. So in order to address this, they Photoshop in a couple of women. Uh. Now, now you've got exacerbation of offense because but even that's a problem because they're not transgender <laughs> sorry yeah where do you end with this kind right. of stuff yeah because now, now what, what, we, what we're actually seeing is, is patriarchy means what does patriarchy actually mean patriarchy actually means at least two things as far as I can see patriarchy means the patriarchy I'm talking about you know, as, as, as it's used, uh, you know, politically and as a propagandistic kind of uh, tool or label, means a couple of things. It means that, one, competence. <laughs> if you know what to do, yeah, in other, and that means objective standards. If you, if you actually can be, if, you're, if, you're, if your work can be measured by if it works or not, then that's the patriarchy. And two, yeah. generally speaking, a lot of white guys tend to be able to make things work. Yeah. Now, now we have a long argument, interminable argument about the chicken and the egg on that one. Mm-hmm. You know, what comes first, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the simple fact on the ground mm-hmm. is, that the, is that the people who make things work look like the guys in that photograph. They're the guys. If we remove them all tomorrow, you know what we'd have? We'd have Madagascar. We'd have third world hell tomorrow. We all know this. What kind of crap pull a game are we playing? Yeah. Are we? But this is the problem. Envy is willing to pay that price. Envy is willing to make everybody live in a hell so that nobody has any advantage. I, I want to pull this back to government for a moment. Um, there's another unalienable right that doesn't go to medieval theologians and that Locke didn't talk about, but that Luther did. Um, and that's the right to conscience. Uh, Luther believed that no one, not the church, not the state, no one had authority over the human conscience except God. Okay. I think he's right. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing now is an increasing move by state and, frankly, federal legislatures to legislate conscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here. Mm. Let, let's take a look at... Oh, I hate to go here. The Book of Revelation. <laughs> okay. Hey, that opens there, up a, uh, <laughs> a few series. I, I, Another show. I, 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 <laughs> I, I'm not going to pursue this too far. But what happens, you know, with the, the, the mark of the beast that everybody talks about? Oh, yeah. I'm going to take this I in a completely different direction than anybody else is, it, I, that I've seen is taking it. Um, it's pretty clear that the 666, or in some manuscripts, the 616, is referring to Nero. It's referring to the emperor. Okay. Now, where you know, it, it's it, it's either going to be on the forehead or on the right hand. Mm-hmm. Where else in scripture do we see the forehead in the right hand? Sure, the phylacteries. The phylacteries. So what, what the phylacteries in the Old Testament, you're supposed to put the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You're supposed to put that on your forehead and on your right hand. Um, what that points to is that when you look out 
and you see the world, you see it through the Shema. Right. When you act, when you do things with your hands, when you're, right. you're acting in the world, you're supposed to be doing it through the Shema. Right. So what's happening with the mark of the beast is it's actually saying you're going to replace God with Caesar. Right. Caesar is going to be the one through whose eyes you look at the world. Or, uh, the Caesar is going to be the one you're going to... And if you refuse to do that, we're going to cut you off from the economy. So this, this gets us back to the theme of the day which is re- Protestant resistance theory. That's why I went here. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what's happening, what, what I am seeing increasingly happening, is the government is trying to dictate conscience. Right. And if, it, if you refuse to go along with Caesar, then you're deprived of your livelihood, and maybe if you're Baron L. Stutzman, your life savings. Right, hmm. right. You're cut off from the economy. You're cut off from everything. Right. Property, which is, of course, related to happiness, right? Right. Yeah. right. So government is now presuming on, well, first of all, we've lost liberty. That's mm-hmm. completely gone conceptually, even from the culture. Right. We've, we're losing the rights of conscience. Hmm. We're losing the right to property um, increasingly on a whole lot of different levels. Do you realize that we pay a greater percentage of our income in taxes than slaves in Egypt did? Wow. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we, we can look at all of these different things right. where the unalienable rights that were identified by medieval theologians, articulated by Locke, the idea of Luther's um, insistence on, on um, freedom of conscience, all of these things are being systematically eroded. And actually, if I am right about this, then the state is turning into the Antichrist. Well, the thing I want to know mm-hmm. is where in the world are our theologians, Glenn? I mean, I think you ought to write a book on this thing. I, I commission you. Our theologians are usually uh, uh, pushed to the margins, uh, never thrown any any kind of income sources. <laughs> well, but, but, but here's the thing. You know, what you've laid out, Glenn, and what I know you can provide, Tom, is... Yeah. Is something that's desperately needed now, because because our kind of our default position is kind of uh, Anabaptist. Yes, we just let the state roll over you. Yes, yes, they, uh, really anti this worldness, and to which you know, it, yeah, this this kind of let let the let the world be given way to to, to the temporary powers. Because I want those old Presbyterians from Scotland, well, that everyone were scared to death of. Well, that's that's the thing. When when theology and the theological actually valued in the church, I mean, I think it's one of the big steps of this this uh, this podcast and everything else we're up to is you're, we're actually re you know we're valuing the theological in a way that isn't seen and you know the theological insight worldview insight uh, in a way that hasn't been seen in the Protestant and evangelical world no longer not in the evangelical but uh, I can't remember the quote this is one of those marvelous quotations it's it's the idea and this is a paraphrase but the most fearful thing that Napoleon could envision or see was Presbyterians at prayer (laughs) (laughs) that's a great because you know because what 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 were the Presbyterians willing to do yeah Presbyterians were willing to fight yeah not just with you know on their knees but with the gun in their hands yeah Yeah. that's what we need we need to have a handbook for that we can give to a layman and say okay this is when the government crosses this line Mm mm-hmm that's when yeah. you have a justification to fight back. 
yeah. physically yeah. fight back. And I, and I think we've been kind of slow to do it. Um, a lot of it has been we want to live quiet, peaceable lives. Sure, sure. We, we don't want to stir controversy where there isn't. But when you have you know abortion on the level that it is in this country, where it's almost a sacrament. It is. <laughs> when Kirsten uh, Gillibrand just the other day said that opposition to abortion was the equivalent of joining the KKK. Yeah. See, that's where they're going. That's where they're that's going. That's where they're going, and those are the people that we need to not be patient with any longer. That's right. It's time to fight them. Yeah, it is. To, to, to go to the wall. Yeah. Because, and, and, and the other thing we know, I mean, I, I've played with ideas all my life. I've studied very high-end, read high-end, and these people are idiots. Right. They, they are. are idiots. You they push them idiots. on their worldview, there's nothing, there's, there's thin water sitting right. under it. Well, that, and yeah. that's the thing that I think, you know, in terms of what justifies this podcast, this podcast, yeah. is the fact that the three of us have been in that world. And we are, we are bringing back a report from Canaan. Yeah. You know, you think there are giants in the land? Yeah. They are hollow. They, yeah. they, they yeah. don't, there's nothing to be impressed by. Yeah. Nothing to be impressed by. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the articles I've been reading, Glenn, right recently, is it been showing the shallow water on the other side, but how people buy into that because they've been disposed to do that. They, they're, they're shaped to do that. They buy into simplicity. Um, and they buy into, you know, trigger conceptions. Because, because literally going back to the 1950s, there has been a systematic effort within the educational establishment to view education less as what I would think of as education and more as indoctrination. That's exactly it. They just want to make us into consumers yeah. and little cogs in the machine. It's it's interesting you say that. Maybe we'd do a do a show on that at some point, and I'd, I'd like to get your insight because I do think that you know we often think as kind of education functioning in a value neutral way, or what's the, you know the benefit for the for the the children in a society. Actually, you have to yeah. push it back earlier. You've got yeah. to push it to early twentieth century with Dewey. Yeah, That's, yeah. There's a guy. But I think it would be excellent. We need to do a show on Dewey. But we we need to trace this because what we what you know there is an intentional cultivation of our children, us, you know, we've all been shaped by it, um, even in ways we don't know. I mean, I'm constantly weaning off of this yeah, stuff as I learn a deeper biblical vision, and, uh, but even our dispositions, um, but the, the way in which there is an intentional way to shape people to be um, oriented towards towards this kind of easy malleability by political power that doesn't have you know, a, you know God's interest at heart, right. um, and really undermining it is really at its so interest. Yeah, that's right. Ultimately, yeah, that's that's the flip side of it. Is you know, once 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 the kingdom end is is gutted, then the human end is is uh, so ripped right with it. Yeah. And it's because we're made in the image of God. It, it follows. Follows right right there. But we, yeah, mm-hmm. we ought to we ought to wrap up. We're kind of getting long here. But uh, anything you want to say as you can. Uh, you know, in conclusion, Tom, and then Glenn, and, and wrap up. A lot. Uh, there's a lot here, and I think we could vi- revisit a lot of these things. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it, this kind of um, opens up something that I want to follow up on. I think one in particular would be uh, Augustine in the City of God in relationship to the, the context we're in now, because that was the other side of his his emphasis was was the you know the, the higher vision that Christianity offered. 
um, which kind of placed all of that. And then, of course, there are other resistance movements that I, I think I'm going to talk about in the next one. Um, there was Karl Barth, especially in relationship to National Socialism, right. and uh, right. just kind of where where you know. This is this is a theme that I think uh, we need to keep coming back to. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, Glenn? Well, I, I want to make clear that this isn't a partisan rant. Right, uh, right. The fact of the matter is, um, both of the political parties have done us serious disservices here. Yeah. And we are, you know, we are in a situation in which we have gone step by step down a road that the founding fathers would have seen as justification for revolution long ago. Right. Um, we we have moved into a point where the government has become, frankly, tyrannical in many of the classic senses of the word. And my the trajectory it's going is not just tyranny, but totalitarianism. Yep. Yes. And you can I, see it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I hope this doesn't sound, um, you know, knee-jerk or reactionary or anything, Honestly. but I mean this in the very, very literal sense of the word. Hmm. And we need to really think long and hard about how we... we Need what we need to do to respond to this, not just for our own sakes or the sake of our family, but for the sake of the kingdom. Right. Because increasingly, what the, the way the trajectory is going is going to result in the criminalization of historic Christianity. Right. We've already seen it. Yeah. And it's you know as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you know this might be the point at which we need to put a spoke in the wheel of this machine. Right. And I know you're going to be going there our, um, our next, time. next time. To get. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you for joining us today for the Theology Podcast. I hope this kind of stirred you up a little bit. <laughs> it did us. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. So, but, but if you've been listening to us in the you know, you know that our, our, our sort of the ambit of our vision is quite large, and <laughs> this is a, a simply a component of it, but an important one and one that uh, I think we should talk about again. But anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now.